0: Chapter 21. What is money for? A foreign manufacturer visiting our plant said, We have to fix our profits in advance, or we should not be able to pay our charges. Unless we can calculate on the basis of a certain output and a certain profit, we should have to go out of business. How do you manage that? The question was perfectly sincere, and the man meant well, but he was trying to drive with the cart before the horse. He had been setting out to gain a certain profit, instead of starting out to render a certain amount of service and let the profit take care of itself. We regard a profit as the inevitable conclusion of work well done. Money is simply a commodity which we need just as we need coal and iron. If money be otherwise regarded, great difficulties are inevitable, for then money gets itself ahead of service, and a business that does not serve has no place in our commonwealth. The most common error of confusing money and business comes about through the operations of the stock market, and especially through regarding the prices on the exchange as the barometer of business. People are led to conclude that business is good if there is lively gambling upward in stocks, and bad if the gamblers happen to be forcing stock prices down. The stock market, as such, has nothing to do with business. It has nothing to do with the quality of the article which is manufactured nothing to do with the output, nothing to do with the marketing. It does not even increase or decrease the amount of capital used in the business. It is just a little show on the side. It has very little to do with dividends. A large part of trading in stocks is without reference to dividends. Except in the sober investing class, the dividend is of little consequence. At least it is not the main objective. Some of the most active stocks do not pay dividends. The profits sought from stock trading have no relation to the earnings of industry by the production of goods. The price of a stock often depends wholly on how many people want to buy the shares that are for sale. The state of the stock market may make a deal of difference to the officers and directors of a company if they are dabbling in the stocks and trying to make money out of the securities of the company instead of out of its service, These stock market companies are of little consequence. They flicker and die out. But they do serve to convince people that the stock market has something to do with business. Whereas if not a single share of stock were to change hands, it would make no difference to American business. And if every share of stock changed hands tomorrow, industry would not have a cent more or a cent less capital to work with. This whole stock activity, therefore, is on a par with organized baseball, so far as the fundamental interests of business are concerned. It is a sideshow, unrelated to the basic principles of business and supplying none of the necessities of business. It has only a spasmodic and accidental relation to values. If the extreme speculative element were removed, the natural buying and selling of stocks would be but a mere sideline of banking. We further hold, however, that strings on a business held by those not engaged in it are hindrances, because often it compels the business to become a money maker instead of a commodity maker. When the chief function of any industry is to produce dividends rather than goods for use, the emphasis is fundamentally wrong. The face of the business is bowed toward the stockholder and not toward the consumer, and this means the denial of the primary purpose of industry. The absentee stockholder is one of the principal, though concealed, items in the unnecessary and preventable costs of living. All this is defended, of course, by the statement that stock represents a contribution to enable industry to function. The story, however, is not so simply told. When preferred stock, for example, becomes a burden on production, the benefits of industry become private instead of public, and this cannot be defended on any terms. There comes to mind an instance where a charge of $50 was added to the cost of an article to meet the demands of stockholders. In another case, $125 per article was added for the same reason. Industry is not money. It is made up of ideas, labor, and management, and the natural expression of these is not dividends, but utility, quality, and availability. Money is not the source of any of these qualities, though these qualities are the most frequent sources of money. Any business is better off when its money comes from the buyers of its product. Such money is not a charge on the business or on the public. Money that enters in any other way becomes a charge on the business. Its main interest is its own increase, and the public never gets through paying on the original investment. But stock speculation is not without value. Some really good men lose at it and in consequence are compelled to go to work. The stock habit takes too many men's minds off their legitimate business. Anything that drives them back to their proper sphere is a benefit. Wealth is not increased by stock activity. At best it only changes hands. Wealth is not created. It is but a score in a game. I was once quoted as saying that the stock market was a good thing for business. The reporter omitted my reason, because it drives so many men back to legitimate business by breaking them. Business used to be conceived as existing solely for the benefit of its owners. Now the pendulum has swung the other way, and there is a notion that business exists solely for those who work in it, and more especially for the wage earners that is as great a misconception as that business exists to produce shares which may be traded on the stock market we had a very curious instance of this in the essays of a number of college men who worked in our shops during a vacation period what they wrote was interesting they were keen inquisitive and intelligent they were not partisan except with that perfectly human partisanship which instinctively takes the side of the working man as against the corporation with the exception of one or two men, all pronounced the employer-employee relation as good, that the working conditions were good, and so on. But not one said a word about the product. If a hospital had been examined after this manner, the report would have said how comfortable the doctor's offices were, what nice accommodations were provided for the nurses, and how easy and delightful was the arrangement of the intern's hours not a word about the service of that hospital to the health of the world. That is, those college men assume that industry is to be judged by its benefits to those who are in it, as if the worth of schools is to be judged by the personal gain of teachers, or the worth of hospitals by the financial benefits derived by their doctors. Schools are to be judged by pupils, their work. Hospitals are to be judged by healed patients, their work. It is not long since the emphasis in industry was on the profit for the owner. The emphasis now is on the profit to the wage-earner. That is as far as we have got in the popular judgment of industry. It is right, of course, that wages should receive their just emphasis, but no judgment of industry will ever be sound until industry is first given the test of public service. The question of profits and wages will never find sound solution until the service motive in industry is completely established. The first responsibility of industry is to the public. The factory justifies itself by its usefulness to society at large. If it neglects so vital an element as wages, it simply disqualifies itself from rendering any service at all, for these things all go together. Business does not exist to earn money for the capitalist or for the wage earner. The narrow capitalist and the narrow trades unionist have exactly the same view of business. They differ only on who's to have the loot. Review the actions of each. First, we can assume that any product or process worth developing has come into being through men who worked at the thing itself for the sake of its perfection and not exclusively nor even primarily for profit. Then the development, having reached a certain stage, it is capitalized. Men of money see the opportunity to make more money. They set up plants, install machinery, and go to work. But the real product they aim to make is dividends, not commodities. Commodities are thought of only as a means to the dividends. If, in a pinch, anything must suffer, it will be the commodity, not the dividends. Every exertion will be made, wage reduction quality reduction, quantity reduction, price increase, anything to save dividends. Engineers have another interest altogether. Today's standard represents for them the level of today's achievement. They hope to excel it tomorrow. It is just here that engineering science is the enemy of short-sighted finance. A group of money brokers have installed a battery of expensive furnaces to produce dividends. Furnaces are not designed for that. Their purpose is to produce metal. The engineers produce a better furnace. It is then up to the financial controllers to say whether they will scrap the old furnaces and put in the new, giving the public the benefit of lower costs, or cling to the old and prevent the new. Of course this costs money. The money, however, has been previously provided by the public. Every concern which deals well with the public has money to keep up with progress. The surplus of any industrial firm is far more a fund to ensure future progress than it is a payment for past performance. The financial controller of business, having no vision on this side of the matter, protests the unnecessary expenditure. But the engineer, having regard to the service results, makes the expenditure out of self-respect. Take the wage side. Wages furnish purchasing power and the whole process of business depends on people who are able to buy and pay. On the other hand, when special pleaders begin to declare that wages should absorb all the economies, all the increased profits made possible by industrial improvements, it becomes necessary to call attention to the essential class nature and limited benefits of such a view. It has been seriously proposed that all the advantages accruing from better management, such as increased production, lower costs, higher values, should be made over to wages. Our own industries form an example. Most of our improvements are internal. That is, they occur within the management of the business, the laying out of the work, the simplifying of the method, the saving of useless labor and wasted material, all of which permit the service to be rendered at less cost than formerly. There are three ways whither this decreased cost, which is really increased profit, might go. We could say, we will keep it all because it was our ability that made this saving possible. Or we could say, we will take this difference between what the article used to cost and what it costs now and put it into the wage envelopes of the men. Or we could say, It costs less to produce this service, therefore the selling price ought to be reduced an equal amount and the buyer given the benefit. In the first instance, the argument could be, the extra profit belongs to those whose brains made it possible. In the second instance, the argument could be, the extra profits belong to the workers, the producers. In the third instance, the argument could be, the buying public has the right to necessities and service at the lowest possible cost. Stating the arguments gives the answer. The benefit belongs to the public. The owners are not the public. The specific group of employers are not the public. The owners and the workers will get their reward by the increased amount of business the lower prices bring. As has been pointed out previously, industry cannot exist for a class. When it is conceived of solely as making money for a class, instead of providing goods for all, then it becomes a complicated affair which frequently breaks down, breaks down so frequently that pseudo-scientists have created what they call business cycles. It appears from their writings that the order of business is wholly established and that it can run only so long without smashing. That is the superficial money idea of business. We need have no slumps in business. We need never have unemployment. The old pioneers driving west made 12 miles a day then was achieved the unheard-of speed of 16 miles an hour. And today we can cover six or seven hundred miles in 24 hours of automobile driving. The point is we have attained such a speed that slowing down for economic crossings or curves does not mean anything. When the Limited, while passing a crowded section, cuts down from 60 to 30 miles an hour, it does not mean that the train has stopped or even slumped but those who are fearful are always looking out for signs of a slump. Often it would seem that the neurasthenics manage business. The best time to study our economic machinery is lost, because when affairs are prospering, the majority are so interested in getting the utmost out of the machine that they will give no time to improving it as it runs. The only time that we stop and seriously look at our economic machinery is when it breaks down. A bad machine broken down is not much worse than a good machine broken down. The best way to get a line on the machines is to watch them when they are working at supposedly highest precision. And that is what we refuse to do. Even our economic observers watch the progress of business mainly to foretell symptoms of breakdown. It is now an established business to keep a lookout for signs of hesitation or collapse so that those who pay for the lookout may run for cover first. But no one pays for... Indeed, most resent service that looks toward prevention of breakdown by attention to the system while it is working full speed. We are losing a great opportunity if we regard business depressions as unpreventable epidemics. Medical science chooses to follow a line that makes public health continuous. Only the scientific habit of mind can lead us into the desire to make public prosperity continuous. Our recipe for hard times is to lower prices and increase wages, and it would take the efforts of only a few large companies thus to check the panic of any depression brought about by other than some great destruction such as war or a calamity of nature. But serious social losses befall us because of our refusal to consider economic questions when the sun is shining and when everything is going fairly well. The seeds of bad times are in the mistakes which we make in the good times. Yet in good times, no one wants to hear of the mistakes we may be making. The policy then is to get while the getting is good. When the machinery runs down because of our ignorance of all the natural laws which regulate economic health, there is plenty of discussion. But the accident has happened, and the longer or shorter period of recovery and repair must be lived through. These seasons of prosperity and adversity grow two types of thinking, the conservative type appearing with prosperity and the radical type with adversity. Both these types probably are essential but undeniably neither of them acting alone achieves much for progress. The radicals are right in saying that the conservatives make no progress and the conservatives are probably right in saying that the professional radicals could not manage any of the things whose management they criticize. But this cannot be denied. The responsibility always rests upon those in charge, and they happen to be labeled conservatives. Their responsibilities forbid them the irresponsibility of the radicals. Just now, and probably for a long period ahead, until such distinctions as conservative and radical cease, the conservatives will be in charge of the economic machinery through sheer right of being able to make it work as well as it does. With that point of fact agreed upon, what follows? simply this. It devolves upon the conservatives to regard themselves as trustees of power in behalf of all the people. In the past, they have been pretty good trustees with regard to themselves. They have introduced certain improvements in the system for the benefit of banks and businessmen. They have shown their ability to make our crazy-quilt economics yield more square meals and more independence and more homes for more people than has been done anywhere else in the world. It is clearly up to them now, as trustees, to show what they can do further in the way of making our system foolproof, malice-proof, and greed-proof for the benefit of every person in the land. It is a mere matter of social engineering. It may have the effect of reducing personal fortunes, but it will not have the effect of reducing working capital. What right has a personal fortune to be anything but working capital? The time is here when the commanding law is To whom much is given, of him shall be much required." But most harmful of all is the thought that the economic machine can ever be repaired by the government. Interference by the government usually boils down to having the government levy taxes and give the proceeds to those who clamor loudest for them. What are called progressive programs simmer down to, we can force the country to do things for us. The whole list of programs which assume that the government is an inexhaustible source of privilege and favor, the whole list of proposals that the country do this for this class and that for that class, is the expression of the mendicant type of mind. Mass weakness looks like strength, but it is not. It does not propose itself to do the thing it suggests. It proposes that the doers do for it. This type of mind never proposes to serve the country but to make the country serve it. It is true that the strong ought to serve the weak, but not to confirm them in their weakness. Service to the weak is disservice, unless it has the effect of bringing the weak to strength and independence. Fostering the handout attitude of mind is extreme unkindness. That is why our customary charity is such a contemptible thing. It weakens those who are willing to give, and it weakens those who are willing to receive charity is an evasion of effort. Not only is the whole movement toward dependence on government basically wrong as to fact, but it also destroys every possibility of the very good it seeks. First, this idea is wrong in fact, because when government is explored, it is found to have nothing to give except what is given to it. Second, this idea is destructive of a very good it seeks, because it shuts off the source of whatever wealth or power the government might have for collective use. When, for example, the government of Russia was seized, what was found? Nothing. The millennium did not come. Instead, disorder entered, and what measure of benefit there was in the old order was lost. With the supposed source of blessing in their hands, the inaugurators of the new system found there were no blessings to dispense, not even the common blessing of bread. Our legislative channels are choked with proposals to give gratuities in every direction, to organize a paternalism that leaves no corner of life free from the patronage of government agencies, to benefit class against class, and interest as against interest, without end. Legislators have in large measure begun to think that their function as members of government is to serve as nursemaids to the people, instead of clearing the field of action that the people may do things for themselves. Lawmaking bodies have an impression that this is the activity which makes them most popular with the masses. They think that in this they truly represent the people's desires. Much of this legislative action takes the line of attempting to curb the imperfect economic machine by statute. Is not the public in its political capacity just as unscientific as in its commercial capacity? Our governmental economics are grotesque. Most of the laws in restraint of economic progress have been enacted with a view to curbing the element of human selfishness, which is mixed in all gainful activity. But as no law can do this, the net result has been the binding of business in chains. Look at taxes— for the largest governmental activity everywhere seems to be in the line of taxes. Few seem to have studied the relation between high taxes and poverty, that high taxes breed poverty by making production less efficient. Neither do we examine into the true functions of government. It is rather significant that the only forms of taxation submitted directly to the people are those forms which can be made to appear as payable by a succeeding generation. The big appeal is to class consciousness. It is right that the tax burden should be distributed according to the ability to pay, but it is wrong that the tax function should be used as a means of class propaganda. There are no class divisions in the actual workings of any tax. The people all pay it. When the man of large means makes honest returns and pays large taxes, it is the public that has supplied the money. When the dishonest man evades the tax, it is still the public that pays the difference. One way to get a correct angle is to penetrate behind the dollar sign to the thing itself. That will throw a lot of tax injustice into relief. When a business is on the point of expanding, suppose the income tax man should come along and say, give me your new machinery fund. Is the money which the government would get under such conditions half as useful to the country as the factory expansion would be with its increase of employment and national resource? As a matter of fact, is it really dollars that are collected under such circumstances, or is it commodities that are confiscated? Think of the inheritance tax as collectible in actual possessions rather than in money. Suppose the collector says, We must take one of the furnaces, four of the ovens, two of the elevators, ten of the machines, twenty-five percent of your coal pile, as an inheritance tax. That would be comprehensible on the theory that some wrong perpetrated against society was represented by the goods seized. It would be comprehensible on the theory that it is wrong to seize a living man's possessions, but right to take them from his children when he is dead." It would be comprehensible on the theory that government deliberately permits criminal increase of machinery and jobs while an industrial manager lives, but quickly abolishes machinery and jobs when the manager is no more. And yet such action would be far more just than the present one. Inheritance is always expressed in dollars, yet the dollars are seldom there. What most heirs inherit in these days is a job, a business to be maintained, a responsibility to be shouldered. To inherit the managing control of a factory or other business is to be saddled with a task upon the wise performance of which depends the employment of men and the livelihood of families. This is all part of the fallacy which has steered our country and other countries wrong on so many matters touching industry. The fallacy that business is money and that big business is big money.